Thank you, Betsy. Good morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is our sixth message in chapters 8 and 9, which is the longest passage on giving in the Bible. And I just want to compliment you this morning. You have hung in there. And uh, you have applied this because our giving is up. It's exciting. When it's exciting. Hello? Good morning. It, you know, it's exciting when you, when you do expository preaching to see how God kind of brings us sometimes to a section of Scripture that we really need. I think if we voted on what to talk about, we'd probably never vote on having a series on giving uh, because we are naturally resistant to giving because we are naturally selfish. We would vote on a series on getting. And it's pretty obvious to me that people are people, whether it's today or 2,000 years ago, and I think that's one of the reasons why Paul preaches these two chapters, 8 and 9, on giving, and he never mentions the word money once. Heard about a bivocational pastor who was applying for a job as a police officer. One of the questions he was asked during his final interview was, what would you do to disperse an angry mob? He said, I'd take an offering. (laughs) This morning, I want to backtrack over the verses we covered last week at the end of chapter 9, and I want to highlight three concepts about giving. Number one, give till you giggle. Did you know that the most important thing about your giving is not your amount, it's your attitude? Look at verse 7 again. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice those two words, grudgingly or reluctantly and under compulsion. Does that ever describe your giving? You know, I've observed at least three wrong attitudes in giving over the years, and I just want to mention those to you. One is, I've got to help God out. This is the person who sees a need, and since somebody's got to give to it, it might as well be them. And their attitude is, poor God, can't handle his bills. Lucky for him, I've got some money, and I can help him out. Now, we probably would never say that out loud, but guess what? God judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. And sometimes we might give with an attitude that says, I've got to help God out. You know, I think if there's ever a time when Psalm 2-4 comes into play, it's when you say that, because Psalm 2-4 says, he who is enthroned in heaven laughs. God doesn't need your money, and if you think he needs your money, that's funny. The Bible says, in fact, God says in Psalm 50, verse 10, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. 
You see, when we give, we aren't doing God a favor. He is doing us a favor by letting us participate in what he's doing. Second wrong attitude is the attitude that says, I've got to pay God's tax. Some people view tithing as God's law that we have to follow. We have to keep it. We have to give or die. It's like paying income tax to the government. I don't know about you, but I don't giggle when I pay my taxes. Listen, we are not under law. We are under grace. And the 10% that they did under law should just be the starting point for those of us who are under grace as we give to God freely and willingly. I've had people come to me and say, Dan, now when I tithe, should I tithe on my gross income or my net income? When you ask me that question, you tell me you don't get it. Because if that's your mentality, then that is gross giving. You see, you're, you're being like the Pharisees who tithe their spice rack. i got to figure out how much I have to give to God, and then everything else is mine. That's the, not the mentality of grace giving. Grace giving says, God, I'm all yours, and everything I have is yours as well. I think that's why this passage tells us we're to purpose in our heart how much to give because he doesn't want to lock us into a legalistic mentality. He wants us to give as a grace gift to God. We're to purpose in our heart, not because there's a law that says I have to. And then a third wrong attitude is that I've got to give to get God's riches. There are preachers today teaching a prosperity, health, and wealth message. And they say, if you give to God, i.e., give to me, then God will heal all your diseases and he will make you rich. I'm always amused when I watch these televangelists preaching this message on TV and they're wearing glasses. You know what's wrong with that teaching? It turns God into a slot machine. That if I put in enough quarters, it's going to pay out. And it incorporates into my giving a greedy motive. Yes, God promises that if you give, he will give back to you, but he doesn't give back to you so that you can spend it. He doesn't give back to you so that you can hoard it. Why does he give back to you? We saw it last week. Look at verse 8 at the end. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for what? For every good deed. Verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for what? For sowing. Verse 11, you will will be enriched in everything. For what? For all liberality. God gives it back to you so that you can give more of it to him and to others. 
Ray Steadman told a story about a man who received a letter from a well-known televangelist informing him that their ministry needed a quick infusion of cash to pay off some debts. Otherwise, the ministry was no longer going to be able to stay on the air, and so the televangelist had figured out how many viewers he had and divided that by the amount of money he needed. So he asked every viewer to send him $76. In the letter, he promised that you can't outgive God, and for every viewer who sent him $76, he would personally guarantee that God would triple that amount and give them $228. Well, the man sent a letter back that said, Sir, I agree that you can't outgive God. So I have a better idea. You send me $76, and that way God can give you $228, and you can pay off your debt three times as fast. Listen, giving to help God out, giving out of obligation, giving to get rich are all wrong attitudes. What's the right attitude? We find it in five words in verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. You say, well, Dan, I thought God loves everyone. He does. But if you're a parent, you know that sometimes your kids are more lovable than other times. And as God's child, sometimes you're more lovable than other times. You ever been upset at your child when they give you a gift for Christmas? You are never more lovable to God than when you're giving to Him and giving cheerfully and willingly and freely. Some people seem to have the philosophy, give till it hurts, and they buy into that philosophy and they look like they're hurting all the time. God says, give till it feels good. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. What's the word blessed mean? Happy. This word means hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. The most joyful part of a worship service should be the offering. Everybody should have that big smile on their face. Giving to the Lord. He loves to see that. Second thing out of this passage. Give to gain. Let me explain that. In the midst of this passage on giving, Paul inserts a farming metaphor. Look at verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And then in verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Farmers don't give their seed away. They don't view sowing as losing something. A farmer views sowing, a farmer views planting his seed as an anticipation of a harvest. And Paul says our giving should be that in that same manner. And there are certain principles that apply to farming that also apply to giving. And I want to suggest some to you this morning. 
Principle number one. These are absolute principles. Principle number one. God always supplies the seeds. You can't make a seed. You can discover a seed. You can pick a seed. You can plant a seed. But only God can create a seed. No scientist ever formulated a seed from nothing. So all of our seeds are from God. Verse 10 makes that clear. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And in this context, a seed represents the resources God has given to you. And what are your resources? Your money, your possessions, your talents, your abilities, your health, all your blessings, they all come from God. God supplies the seed. Second absolute principle that applies both to farming and to giving is this. Seeds only grow when they're planted. Seeds come in all shapes and sizes, but they all contain one amazing quality. They possess indwelling life. And the paradox is that that life only comes out when a seed dies. A seed has to die and be buried in order to have that life come out of it. Jesus said it this way, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, Jesus wasn't just talking about farming. He was talking about his life, first of all. Jesus had to die and be, mar- be buried to cause a multiplication of life that would come to all of us. But not only was he talking about himself, if you read in the context of that verse, he was talking about us as well. You have to lose your life in order to find your life. You have to give up yourself. You have to give up your money, your possessions, your talents, your abilities in order to experience the harvest that Jesus was talking about. When you have a seed, you have two choices. You can either eat it or plant it. You can do the same with your resources. You have a choice. You can either hoard them or you can plant them. If I have a kernel of corn, that kernel of corn, if planted, now I can eat it, put a little salt, a little butter, eat it, and go, mmm, boy, that was almost tasty. Or I can plant it, and I use the word I loosely because I'm not a farmer. I can plant it, and it will multiply into ears full of kernels of corn. You see, the harvest will never happen unless I plant the seed. I don't know what happens to a seed. I just, you know, from my vantage point as a non-farmer, you take a seed and you bury it under the ground and it disappears and something mysterious happens in that seed. It bursts forth and it sends forth roots downward into the ground to get nourishment and water and it sends shoots upward toward the sunshine and pretty soon they burst through the ground and you've got a plant and fruit and more seeds. But that will never happen unless you plant the seed.
third principle that applies both to farming and to giving. I will always reap what I plant. If I plant peas, I won't get beans. If I plant corn, I won't get squash. If I want peanuts, I've got to plant peanuts. And that principle applies to the spiritual realm as well. If you want God's best, you've got to give him your best. And I think this is true in every area of life. If you plant encouragement, you're going to receive encouragement back. If you plant love, you're going to receive love back. If you plant respect, you're going to receive respect back. The Bible says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If you plant your resources in your flesh, you will reap death. If you plant your resources in the Spirit you will reap life. Fourth absolute principle that applies both to farming and to giving is I'll always reap later than I plant. You never reap a crop from the seeds you plant immediately. Of all the occupations in the world, I think farmers have to be the most patient. A farmer is always waiting for something. He can participate in the process, but he cannot circumvent the process. He can prepare the soil. He can remove the rocks. He can plant the seed. He can weed around the plant, but he cannot cause the growth. He cannot speed up the growth, and he can't control the weather. James said in chapter 5, verse 7, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. You see, planting implies waiting. And we're such a fast food, microwave, high-speed internet, instant oats culture that we want results now. In fact, we want results yesterday. God says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. When you give money to missions, it takes time before you see a harvest of souls. When you give love to someone who's unlovely, they may not respond immediately but you have planted a seed. When you share the gospel with a coworker, they may not respond immediately, but you have planted the seed. When you invest your life in a ministry, be patient. You will reap. You may say, I go there week after week, and I invest, and I invest, and I invest, and I don't see anything happening. I can tell you from personal experience, there were Sunday school teachers, there were people in the church and ministry who invested in my life week after week after week, and they saw nothing coming out of me. But the seed was planted there and later blossomed into fruit.
Be patient when you plant seed for God. In fact, the reality is that your harvest may not even come in this lifetime. We love for it to. We always say, I want it now. I want to give my $76 and get my $228 back now. You know the problem with that is? If you get it now, you can't take it with you. I would rather have an eternal reward because guess what? It's eternal. God gave me the option. You want to get some money now that you can only spend here and when you die you leave it behind or would you rather have some eternal reward that you'll have forever? I say, I wait. I'll wait. I'll be patient. Well, that's the way it is with farming. We have to be patient because the harvest comes later. And then the fifth principle I'll always reap in proportion to how many seeds I plant. This is simple math. Plant a few seeds, you get a small harvest. Plant many seeds, you get a huge harvest. Plant zero seeds, and you get no harvest. A smart farmer doesn't hoard his seed. He plants it freely. Look at verse 6 again. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now my track record isn't real good with stocks, so don't talk to me about stocks, but let me, let's suppose that I told you about a stock you could buy tomorrow morning. It's going to open tomorrow morning for $6 a share. And in six months, it will be selling for $60 a share. Now, if you knew that that stock was going to grow tenfold in six months, what would you do tomorrow morning? You say, well, I think I'd buy one stock. Or, or maybe 10 stocks, or 100 stocks. No, if you were wise, you would leverage everything you've got and buy thousands of stock tomorrow morning, which would be worth 10 times as much six months from now. In Matthew 13, Jesus told about the man who found a treasure hidden in a field. He found it, and it says he buried it back down again, and then he sold everything he had, and he went out and he bought that field because he knew that by investing in that field, he was going to gain something far greater. Tiny kernel of corn that I can hold in my fingers will grow into a plant over six feet tall. And on that stalk, there will be several ears of corn containing hundreds of seed, which tell me that when it comes to harvest time, the harvest is over a hundredfold. You see, the reason God gives you seeds, which is your resources, is so that you can plant them. And the question is, how many of your resources are you going to plant? We were talking in our small group recently about the quote from John Wesley, who had this simple financial policy. He said, get all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. 
And yet the popular philosophy is get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. Don't trust me on stocks. But do trust God on the principle of farming and giving. If you want to have a bountiful harvest, you've got to sow bountifully. And then the third point I want you to see in this passage is give out a gratitude. In the final verse of this section, Paul bursts forth with a doxology in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Giving is a way of saying thanks to God for something we can't comprehend and we can't even describe, which tells me that I can never say thank you enough for this gift. Now, what makes the gift indescribable? Well, let's just look at it from three angles to help us with that. First of all, it's indescribable because of the indescribable Father who has given it. How do you describe the infinite, omniscient, omnipresent God who dwells in unapproachable light? Chris Tomlin rightly sings, indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. I think with all my training in, in, in the Bible and school that I went to, I never learned more about God than when I became a dad. Because... God instills in you a love for your children. And you, you guys who are dads know what it's like to be up on Christmas Eve after midnight putting together a Barbie car wash. <laughs> it's no sweat. You're going to do that because you love your kids. And you want to see that smile on their face when they receive that gift. I can't describe the Father. He's indescribable. But I do know that he loves you and me. And I understand in a small degree why he gave us his best. Secondly, it's an indescribable gift because of the indescribable Savior who embodies that gift. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the gift of God? It's eternal life, and it's in Jesus. I can't describe how Jesus is fully God and fully man. I won't even try. And I can't explain eternal life. That's forever life. I can't, I can't explain the quantity of it, that it goes on forever. My, my little mind, my finite mind just won't grasp that. I can't explain the quantity. I can't explain the quality because it's God's life in me. That's indescribable. But what I do know is 
that eternal life is in Jesus. See, I can take this card, eternal life, put it in my Bible. When it's in my Bible, in order to get the card, you have to get my Bible. Well, God has placed eternal life in Jesus. And in order to receive eternal life, you have to receive Jesus. He is the indescribable gift with the indescribable blessing of eternal life. And then thirdly, I would say it's an indescribable gift because of the indescribable nature of what it does for you and me. This gift removes the penalty of your sin. This gift imputes Jesus' righteousness to you. This gift makes you a brand new person. This gift adopts you into the family of God. This gift makes you an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. This gift gives you the Holy Spirit who comes and takes up residence in your life. No wonder Paul said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When Luke chapter 17, 10 lepers asked Jesus for mercy, and Jesus said, I want you to go to the priest. So they headed off to the priest. Now, if you read in the Old Testament, When a leper was cleansed, he had to go to the priest, and the priest checked him out and said he was okay. Well, they went to the priest. They still had leprosy. So they're heading off to the priest, and when they're about halfway to the priest, they were miraculously cleansed, and their leprosy was gone. And the Bible says one of those lepers turned around and came back and bowed at Jesus' feet and said, thank you. And Jesus asked an interesting question. He said, where are the other nine? Which tells me that God appreciates us saying thank you to him. Where are the other nine? I'm sure the other nine were thankful. But apparently they went on to the priest and got squared away and went on with their life. Which tells me if my math is right, that probably 90% of people don't appropriately say thanks to God. One out of ten come and say thank you for the indescribable gift that he's given to us. Let's be the 10%. Let's be the people who say thank you to the Lord. We're going to close our service today by taking communion And as we do, I trust that you will have a heart that says thank you. And to say thank you appropriately to the Lord today, it involves laying down our lives, laying down our resources, and laying down our all because the bread and the cup represent God's all, the life of his only son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then we'll take communion. If you're here as a guest, you're welcome to partake because it's the Lord's Supper. There are stations here. The Bible says you need to examine yourself before you do. Prepare your heart and then take the bread and the cup. And so uh, 
the praise team is actually up in the balcony. They're not going to be up here today. So there'll be no distraction. They're going to play some, some praise choruses. You prepare your heart. You come and make it personal between you and the Lord, and you take the bread and the cup and say thank you for what he's done for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you today for the fact that you are an amazing God. You are indescribable. Your son is indescribable. The gift is indescribable. How could we receive such a gift and not want to say thank you? How could we receive such a gift and not want to give back to you? Lord, I pray today that you would challenge our hearts afresh. And as we take the bread and the cup today, that it might not be a simple ceremony, but you would impact our hearts and our lives as we reflect on the cross and what it cost the Lord Jesus to make us your children. And Lord, in appreciation, I pray today that we would truly lay down our lives. Some of us may have never done it before. Some of us need to do it because we give and we grab back. That today we would truly surrender all to you and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name.